It'll never work, McGee. What do you mean, it'll never work? You claim that you can fix this radio set so it'll tune in programs that were broadcast years ago? I'm rewiring it so I can tune it to different years instead of different stations, you see? No, I don't. Well, look, Tootsie, according to the McGee theory of radio Dianetics, which I'm the guy that thought it up, I claim that when you hear a broadcast once, that ain't necessarily the end of it, you see. It don't just disappear. In other words, old radio programs never die. Next, the golden days of radio. Hi, this is Frank Brzee welcoming you to the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past with the world's most famous personalities. On this program, we're featuring excerpts from one of the most popular programs of all time. And joining us in person is the star of that program, Jim Jordan, better known as Fibber McGee. Every Tuesday night at 6.30 on NBC, millions of people across the United States would tune in to the most popular program of them all. The Johnson's Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. In these days of mass production and bargain dress shops, lots of women have never learned how to sew a seam. Or so it would seem. But there's a gal at 79 Wistful Vista who was brought up to see eye to eye with a needle and who always knows where the bodice is buried. Yes, it's Molly McGee of Fibber McGee and Molly. Hey, kiddo. What are you making? Hey, Tootsie. What goes with the throbbing bobbin? Hey. Speaking to me, dearie? Yeah. Let the sewing machine cool off for a minute. My gosh, I haven't heard a singer take so much abuse since Hope started ribbing Crosby. <laughs> what are you making? I'm making a new dress. Watch those patterns, dearie. Don't mess them up. I have them all laid out the way I want them. Oh, okay. If you change them around, I'm liable to wind up with a gownless evening strap with a drooping placket and five sleeves. <laughs> Look, Dreamboat, why do you have to stab your pretty little lunch hooks full of needle holes? The Bonton still sells dresses. I want to make a dress, dearie. Oh? Besides, at the Bonton, I'd have to wait for a fitting, and I need a new dress this afternoon. This afternoon? What for? Is the fleet in or something? <laughs> now the new president is dropping Harry in. Harry Truman? I... Dropping in here? My gosh, we got to get the piano tuned. <laughs> is, uh, is Margaret coming, too? I never thought we'd no, be... No, no, no. Not President Truman. The new president of Our Ladies Club, Mrs. Armadale. Mrs. Armadale? Mm-hmm. Ain't that the haughty old potato sack that always looks like she was bluffing her way through a reception with a busted garter? <laughs> I don't think that's a very fair description, McGee. I've never met her myself, but Mrs. Armadale is very important socially in Wistful Vista. Is that a fact? Yeah. Well, curl my pinky and dunk me a crumpet. 
Well, that's an excerpt of the Fibber McGee and Molly show of March 22nd, 1949. And our guest on this edition of the Golden Days of Radio is the star of that show, Jim Jordan. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Frank. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Fibber McGee and Molly, for, I guess, more than about 20 years, was the most popular show on radio. And it had more listeners. And it was a, it was it seemed like a homespun program, but it or a hometown program anyway. But it was it was a, basically a comedy show, wasn't it? That's right. Oh yes, it was all comedy. But it was a comedy show. It was set up like a vaudeville show. That's right. It was uh, people spoke of it as a situation comedy, which it was not mm-hmm. actually. I mean, Fibber McGee and Molly would walk down the street and meet all these people, and it was more like Allen's Alley than it was. <laughs> uh, or like the Ed situation. Sullivan show. He's like got a that. situation, and, and he uses all these acts. That's right. We didn't always do it the same way, but we used that a lot. Well, I know when you first started, you, you were born in, uh, in Peoria mm-hmm. and uh, lived there, and you started out in radio, or I guess tried to start out in radio about 1925 or so. Uh, uh, 25. We don't remember whether it was 25 or 26, really, actually. We were in the business, of course, before, uh-huh. and uh, we... Uh, we're in Chicago, and we went down on a dare. And in those days, uh, uh, the radio stations had somebody out on the street dragging people in that could <laughs> do anything. You know, uh-huh. they just you, you went into it, and we went in and sang a couple of songs, and that was the beginning. Uh, what, what kind of songs did you sing? Well, Shine on Harvest Moon, oh, or, were well, they ra- or special material? Everything, or? everything. We did uh-huh. a, a vaudeville act in which we did. You know all the ballads and and comedy songs and everything mm-hmm. together, and I did stuff alo- alone too. Besides the comedy songs, did you start out in in vaudeville by doing material, by doing a comedy routine, all of Burns and Allen? Or? No, no. We were a, we were a piano act. We didn't speak. Uh huh. We didn't speak a word. When did you find out you could uh, you talked funny? After we got on radio. <laughs> well, I had uh, I had done it before too. I had done comedy before mm-hmm. in vaudeville. And you got a program, uh, and I remember I've mentioned this program before. It was called Smack Out. Yes, that's right. And this is a, uh, a show that, uh, that was a comedy, basically a comedy show with music. Yeah, that was a, that well, drifted a little further away from comedy sometimes than Fibber McGee and Molly did. And that was half music. We sang on that show, too. We mm-hmm. sang and we did these little, this dialogue. And the guy, the, the old guy ran a store mm-hmm. in uh, Columbia near Columbia, Missouri, and uh, he, uh, he never had anything in the store. Every, anybody come in, they wanted anything, and he, he, he looked for it, but he could never find it. <laughs> and he'd say, he's, well, I'm smack out of that, and I'll have it in tomorrow <laughs> if come in. And that was where we got that name. And that was the, his name was Luke Gray, and he became Fibber McGee. And after the Johnson Company bought they bought Smack Out. That's what they bought. They bought that show. That's right. Uh-huh. That's what attracted them to us. And uh, we had done some... That was on in the daytime, and we had done some nighttime shows, uh, and they knew this, too, the Johnson Company. And um, after they bought us and decided to put us on, we were all ready to go on, and we didn't know quite whether to call us Marion and Jim Jordan or give us some kind of a name or something. And uh, Jack Lewis, who was the... Uh, uh, manager of the agency that was handling this said wouldn't it be nice if we could uh, 
we had meetings every two or three days, you know, for weeks, you know, building this thing up and getting it ready to go on. So wouldn't it be nice if we could have, give him a name instead of Luke Gray, a name that would be kind of synonymous with a liar, you know, which he was. Uh-huh. That's all the show in the beginning was just all horrible lies. So that was in this meeting. And the next day, when we came into the meeting, the next meeting we had, Don Quinn had a slip of paper about hmm, four or five inches long and just an inch wide. And just across the, was the name Fever McGee. And that was it. That was it. That's that a great it. story. That's a great beginning. And on, in, during all the time the program was on the air, you had uh, great characters on your show. Yes. There was one that uh, that was uh, it was a voice done by your wife and it was the little girl down yeah. the street well she, she did the the little girl the teeny was done in smack out and long before smack out she did that and she got the voice from her daughter oh, she did. when she was a child uh-huh well that was a cute spot on the show and we have one of those excerpts now from about 1948 here's fibber mcgee and teeny Ah, there, my dear. Do come in and sit down. Well, I was... Hmm? I said, do come in and sit down. After all, I may be gone a long time, and I should like to have only the pleasantest of memories of my little friends in Wistful Vista. Come, child, sit down. Okay, mister, I'll bite. What's the gimmick? There's <laughs> no gimmick, sis. I'm just in a sentimental mood, I guess. Mrs. McGee and I are going to Oregon. Oh. Huh? Hmm? What? Sure. Okay. <laughs> when you going, mister? When you? When you? When you? No, that's excellent. This summer, sis. End of June sometime. Get there just about the time the salmon are going upstream to palm their young. <laughs> to what, mister? To palm their young. Salmon do that, you know. That's biological in a kind of a fishy way. <laughs> you see, sis, when a mama salmon wants the stork to bring her some little <clears throat> salmons, she fights her way upstream. Uh, why? <laughs> I don't know. Just life, I guess. <clears throat> All mothers have a kind of a shad row to hoe. <laughs> Give it. Anyway, when they get upstream, they start pawning their young. Gee, do they honest? That's what they tell me. Oh. Pawning with salmon refers to the fact that the young salmon are left as security for the old folks, you see. <laughs> In fact, the original pawn shop symbol, sis, was originally meant to indicate three golden fish balls <laughs> made of salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, mister, hmm? in the first place, the salmon run doesn't start in June. Hmm? It starts in February, usually, and lasts through spring. Yeah, but what Secondly, the... the older fish do not return to the spawning grounds. Hmm? They usually die on the return trip to the sea. The young salmon, or par, live in fresh water a year or two, and then they go to sea as smoke. Yes, but what... In approximately another two years, they seek fresh water again, thus completing the cycle. Hmm? So save that blessed event stuff for people who believe in it, like Mr. Winchell. That's a cute spot. I, I always love the teeny spot. I, uh, when I was listening to teeny, then it was something that always tickled me that McGee always said, uh, often said, after she, you know, after, she, after her exit, 
he'd say, I, I still think that kid's a midget. <laughs> when, when did you move from, uh, from Chicago? In 1939. Uh, how, the show had been on for about five years before you moved Started out? Started in 35, yes. Uh-huh. We came out here in 37 and made a picture and uh, went back. We made a picture at Paramount. And we were here about just about 10 weeks, I guess, and went back. And then we came back out again in 1939. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, you, the show originated here? Always, yes. Now, some of the people that, uh, that you originally used and met and worked with in Chicago came out here. Uh, Wallace Wimple uh, was, a, was a friend from Chicago yes. who moved out with you. Wallace Wimple and... Uh, Isabel Randolph, who did Mrs. Uppington for a number of years, mm -hmm. she came out with us, too. There was one character that everybody screamed at on the show. As a matter of fact, this character became so popular that uh, they finally had their own program, but it was, it was Beulah. Incidentally, I think Beulah's fixing trout for dinner. Oh, boy, trout. That's for me. How's Beulah fixing it? I'll see. Oh, Beulah! Somebody in here yipping for Beulah? <laughs> <laughs> Now, now the, the, the laughter that the people had there was, was not only a, a laugh at the gag, but also surprise. Yeah. And did that always happen? Yes. Well, that's a sight laugh. Because people didn't know sight, that sight thing. a man played Beulah. They were laughing at what they were seeing. Beulah, uh, Marlon Hurt, was a, was a singer also. Well, that's... He was a singer in a male trio called Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh-huh. You know? That's the way Fibber McGee, uh, McGee and Molly's Closet was like that also. To a great extent. Mm -hmm. they, they laughed at what they were seeing. They knew what they were going to hear. They knew what they were going to see. But when they saw it, it just broke them up. The laugh is from, from seeing that, hearing that voice come out of, of Marlon right. Hurt, that man, That's because right. he looked like a football player. Oh, yeah, he did, yeah. Let, let's continue with the Marlon Hurt bit. How are you fixing the trout for dinner, Beulah? Broiled with sketch butter. Mm. <laughs> sketch butter? Yes, and butter's too scarce to draw. I just thought I got to sketch it. <laughs> <laughs> Got some news for you, Beulah. We're thinking seriously of going to Portland, Oregon this summer. Will you miss us? No, sir. What? You won't? No, ma'am. I'm going with you. Ah. <laughs> great, Beulah, great. Uh, what did your boy's friends say to that? Who, Waldemar? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to teach him a lesson, sir. Yeah, you know, we had a little set to the other night. Uh -oh. A set to? What about, Beulah? Well, there's a big chair in my living room, and Waldemar say, come here, gal, and sit on my lap. Mm. I said, no, and he said, why not? And I said, boy, that chair won't sit, but boy, and he said, this chair sat too easy. But it didn't, and I almost busted Waldemar's leg. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Waldemar had a crush on you, and you had a crash on him. Look at the man, I'm a crash on the crash on him. <laughs> Love that man. <laughs> well, uh, maybe a few months' absence will set Waldemar right, Beulah. I hope so, ma'am. You know what he says, the trouble with women? No, what? trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell us Waldemar's a woman hater, Beulah. On the contrary, ma'am. On the con positively tre <laughs> He's too good looking to be a woman hater. What do you mean, Beulah? Well, sir, the proper ingredient for a woman hater are one good looking woman and one homely man. Mm -hmm. Man say, hi, babe. Woman say, go shopping yourself, skate. <laughs> <laughs> Result, one woman hater. Yeah. Well, let me know when you get ready to leave for Porter's folks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another character that you had on the program was Arthur Q. Bryan, who yes. played Dr. Gamble. That's right. And uh, that became a very successful character. In fact, that was a very long-running character, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, 
what do you think the reason for that was? Do you think people identified with uh, with Arthur Q? Well, uh, yes, and uh, you see, all these people were. This McGee was a he's a kind of a numbskull, you know, mm-hmm. and a braggart and a liar and didn't work and didn't do anything, and all these people were just uh, several steps above him, all his friends. Mm-hmm. But they all liked him, and, and they put up with him because they, they enjoyed being around him. Mm-hmm. So that's how all these characters, they were, he was lower on the scale than anybody on the show, really. And Molly went along Yeah, with that's him. right. Well, here's a very cute clip from uh, one of your Christmas 1947 shows with uh, Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble. Well, this ain't getting my tree sprayed. Where'd you leave the tree, dearie? Out in front. I can attach the vacuum cleaner cord from the porch light. Now, let me see if I get the porch... Come in. Oh, hello there, Dr. Gamble. Hello, Molly. How are you today, pantry paunch? <laughs> fine, Jumbo, fine. You out spreading a little Christmas cheer, telling your patients you're going to retire? Oh. <laughs> He's not going to retire for years yet, are you, Doctor? My dear, I will retire on that far distant day when I can write a personal check for $400 and not have the hired help at the Fourth National Bank burst into hysterical laughter. <laughs> Why, go on, you old miser. You got that much buried under a loose brick in the fireplace right now. Trouble with you is you got more affection for a dollar than my wife has for a pound of butter. And that's the love match of the year, fatso. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have no right to say that, though, McGee. Dr. Gamble does more private charity work than anybody in town. Certainly. I'm a very noble character. When I walk down the street, flowers spring into bloom. Oh. Birds burst into song, and taxi cabs honk twice before they try to kill me. Well, I've got to run along now. This is my busy season, you know. I suppose the children keep you pretty busy around Christmas time, Doctor, huh? No, it's the so-called grown-ups, my dear. Huh? This is the silly season, when 200-pound men start climbing 49-cent stepladders to wire dime store angels to the tops of $3 Christmas trees and wind up in a $500 plastic cast. <laughs> Pennywise and compound fracture foolish. Don't you want to stick around and watch me trim our Christmas tree, Doc? I'm painting it white. Well, you don't have to do that, skip wit. Huh? When I put my gift for you under it, it'll turn white. <laughs> I think that's a funny bit. It is a funny bit. Don Quinn was the writer of Fibber McGee and Molly for all the time you were on the air, wasn't he? I, y- yes. Uh, he and was, then later, Phil Leslie. I have a, um, an opening of one of the shows and uh, a spot that I particularly liked. And I think you'll remember this when I play it. When a small boar thinks he is large caliber, it's time somebody pulled the trigger on him. <laughs> and look who's making like a big shot businessman as we go to 79 Wistful Vista and join Fibber McGee and Molly. Now, let me see. This ought to help the contract. Said bank hereby agrees that if said Fibber McGee fails to hold up his end of the contract, <laughs> said bank will pay said McGee anyhow said amount of said dough. Said who? <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, dearie, the bank will never go. See, where did you get all the cookbooks? From the library, only they don't happen to be cookbooks, Molly. This is law books. This is law. Very interesting, too. To whom? Lawyers. You take here on page 612, for instance, in the case of James H. Reeple, alias Creepy Reeple, accused of stealing the belfry off the Union Street Church. Stealing a belfry? <laughs> That's a pretty high hijack. <laughs> the law says, and I quote, 
In the case of the People versus Creepy Reeple for stealing a steeple, <laughs> counsel for Reeple held the people failed to place Reeple, the creepy steeple stealer, on the steeple at the time the people accused Reeple of the steeple stealing. <laughs> Further, said Reeple was too feeble to creep up the steeple, and the people must... Hold it, creepy. Climb down. <laughs> we have company. Come in. Oh, I think that was a funny spot. And you did those those kind of things for years, didn't you? Yes. The, well, I did a different type of alliteration before mm-hmm. this. This is That's alliterative, but it isn't quite the same as the old alliteration, which was was really a chore. That's the one where you ran out of breath. That's right. I, I just recalled something about that I always thought was funny about McGee and the bank. He was always in trouble at the bank, mm-hmm. the Second National Bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in an argument with the banker one day, and he couldn't win any other way. And, and he says, and besides, anybody that pulls down their blinds at 2 o'clock in the afternoon ain't to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, like that. I've got an old script here, an old from McGee and Molly script from 1948, where you did uh, this kind of an alliteration thing. And if, if you do it, I think all our listeners would like to hear it. So let's read from right about there, Okay. Let's talk about the time I was in the seesaw business back in Sioux City for the... What? You in the seesaw business? You mean I never told you about when I sold seesaws for the seesaw company that old man Seymour had in Sioux City? You never did. Well, Frank, I will. You see, I was a senior seesaw salesman for the Seymour Seesaw Company, and I sold saws on the side. When I'd start out with a sample seesaw and a sack full of saws, I'd sell the other saw salesman silly. Because I was as saucy a seesaw salesman as the other saw salesman ever saw. I could sell you a two-buck buck saw that would outsaw any buck saw you ever saw a young buck saw with, and for six bucks, I'd sell you a saw buck to saw with a buck saw on. I sold so many saws and seesaws that I got saw-sick for saw-selling and seasick for seesaw-selling, and between the seesaw-selling and the seesaws and the seasick seesaw sales and the saw-sick salesman and the buck saw saw buck, and I never did. <laughs> About then, the door would chime, and Molly would say something, and someone else would come in. Gee, I don't know how you do that. That must be the most difficult thing in the world. Jim, I've got so many other Fibber McGee and Molly excerpts to play, and we don't have time on this program. Would you mind coming back next week, and we'll continue with the lives of Fibber McGee and Molly? Sure, I'd be happy to. All right. We're going to close with one thing we shouldn't forget, though, and this was probably the most famous sound uh, that radio ever produced. You tell them what it was. Oh, yeah. That's the sound of the McGee closet. And it sounded something like this. Oh, my gosh. Where's my hammer? Where's my tools? i got to make a trap. Where's my screwdriver? I don't know, Mr. McGee. I'm just a guest here. Oh, I know. I left it right here in the hall closet. No, don't open that door, Well, that wraps up this edition of the Golden Days of Radio and our salute to Jim Jordan, Fibber McGee. This is Frank Brzee in Hollywood, California, inviting you back next week for more shows and personalities from radio's Golden Days. This is the American Forces Radio and Television Service.